Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Lee Carter is the president of Maslansky & Partners, a language strategy firm. Its mission is based on the single idea that it's not what you say, but it's what they hear. Lee analyzes consumer and voter emotional responses to help better understand why consumers and voters think and react as they do. She would tell you the reaction matters, but the reason behind the reaction actually matters more. Lee's work helps a range of companies, trade associations, and nonprofits in the U.S. and globally. And she's also often on the cutting edge of market research. That includes her accurate prediction of the 2016 presidential election outcome, something not too many people can say that they could do. Lee is the author of a terrific book. I've actually included it in the newsletter. We've talked about it a couple times. It's called Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter. Lee Carter, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me. I am really delighted to have you. So let's start with Maslansky Partners and what you do. What is really the most common reason that clients come to you? So clients come to us and they say things like, if people only knew that we did X, Y, and Z, that we were a really good company, that our product was better than so-and-so, that all of these things that people think aren't right, then they would give us the credit, they would buy our products, they would do what we want them to do. Often there's a misperception, and that's why people come to us. And they feel like they've tried other things. They've done advertising campaigns. They've tried, you know, to speak louder in many ways. But they haven't tried to change their messaging strategy. So they come to us usually very frustrated that they're not penetrating or having the, the reactions that they want to in the marketplace. And we help them shift the language so that they can change the behavior. Yeah. Let's talk about how you got into this work, because that in and of itself is an interesting story you included in the book. How did you get your start? The thing was, and this happens to so many people, you have a career of inertia, right? You're going along and everything is going just fine. There was nothing wrong with my career. I was doing very, very well. What were you doing before? I was in financial services marketing. Um, and I enjoyed the people I worked with. I enjoyed a lot of things about it. But it just didn't give me um, it didn't give me a, a sense of fulfillment. Yeah. And I was approaching 30 at the time, and I thought, I've got, there's got to be more than this. So I started just on this, this quest for, for doing something that mattered to me. Um, I thought maybe I was going to move to D.C. and change the world by, you know, doing something political. Um, I thought about getting involved in nonprofits. And then I just started saying yes to all these activities that were related to things I was interested in. I went to a conference. It was called Renaissance Weekend in Charleston, South Carolina, over New Year's. And I heard the founder of my firm speaking. Um, and he was speaking about the impact of language on the 2004 election um, when George W. Bush won. And nobody really expected that to happen. And I was hooked. I thought, that's exactly what I've thought. Language is so, so, so important. And I really, really wanted to work for him. And I wanted to do this for a living. And so I spent about a year, um, some might say stalking him. Others would say being <laughs> persistent. Um, I reached out to him by email. I, um, I tried to connect with him through friends that knew him. And finally, he never responded to me once. Um, after about a year, one of my girlfriends was at a dinner that he was at. And she said, you know, my friend is absolutely obsessed with working with you. And he said, well, what does she do? And he, he said, and she told him that I was in financial services marketing. He said, well, it's really interesting because we're trying to expand to do more corporate work. Have her call me tomorrow. 
And that was that. I met with, um, I talked to him and his partner, Michael Maslansky, is the CEO of my my firm now. Mm-hmm. And um, and the rest is history. I've been there for about 15 years. I started out feeling like I didn't know what I was doing, but loved every minute of it and scrapped my way up. Now I, I get to run the company. Yeah. Um, What's your advice for someone who maybe is fully launched in their career, like you were in your 30s, you'd been working for a number of years, but you decide it's not working for you and you want to make a pivot? What's your advice for them? So the first thing that um, that I would say is that there's a lot of fear involved in making change. And so you've got to let that go and know that there is something on the other side that's better. So if you're if you have to continue working as you did, and I, I had no choice, obviously, I, I, I didn't mind what I was doing. It just wasn't a it wasn't a hard thing. But I made it a priority for myself to try and figure out what else was out there. Um, and I, I had to let go of any fear of change because there is that you always think, will I ever have this kind of job security? Will I ever be able to make this amount of money? Will I I'm, I'm going into a place where, you know, I'm I, you know, I had an office and, a, and an assistant. Am I going to get that anywhere else? Because you just get so stuck. And so I tell people all the time, I was like, just you've got to let that go and just meet people. Get out there. Try and understand what's on the other side. And you might be amazed to find there's something you never even knew. When I came across um, Frank Luntz and, and Michael Maslansky and the mm-hmm. firm, I had no idea that there was a niche that was exactly what I was so passionate about. When I was in high school, my parents used to have me come to the dinner table with a conversation topic in mind. And one of the topics I used to come up with was a lot of words that sounded similar but were totally different. So mm-hmm. I would go to the table and I would say something like, what's the difference between a nerd, a geek, a dork, and a dweeb? They sound <laughs> like they're exactly the same thing. And if you were to look in the dictionary, it would be the same definition. But each one of them is so different because that's the power language has. I've always been obsessed with it. And to find out that there was an opportunity out there for me to do something that was that exciting to me was amazing. And once I found it, I wasn't going to let go until I got to work with it. And I think that's the power of persistence, of once you find your North Star, of knowing what you want to do. Um, And so if someone's out there right now who's frustrated or not sure what they want to do, I just say, start saying yes. Um, You know, making it uh, an endless world of possibilities out there. There's so many interesting people and interesting professions and just find your way to, to what yours is. Yeah. And it's led you to, uh, you know, a regular stint in broadcast media. So you're a regular on Mornings with Maria. I enjoy watching you <laughs> on that show with our mutual friend, Mitch Rochelle, yeah. um, along with other appearances as well. Um, how what was that like, that first experience of going on network television? Did you have a background in journalism or in broadcast? What was the experience like? So a few, about five years ago, um, we had a 360 review in my office, and it was pretty tough. And one of the things that I got feedback on is that people in my office and my, my colleagues wanted to be me to be more of a thought leader. So I started putting myself out there and blogging and pitching. Um, and Michael Maslansky and Frank Luntz had both been on television before, and I thought, well, I'm just going to start pitching myself out there. Um, and I did, and I ended up on Fox and Friends one morning um, with a voter reaction to some women's, actually, uh, uh, commercials. It uh-huh. was, um, remember the, the Fight Like a Girl commercial oh, and yeah. the um, Sorry Not Sorry commercial. And that was the first segment I ever got to do. And I was so nervous. I've never been so nervous in all of my life. And I remember sitting there, Steve Ducey, the host of Fox and Friends, um, was there. And I was looking at his shoes and I thought I was going to throw up on his <laughs> shoes. And he looked at me and said, have you ever done this before? <laughs> and I what said, no. <laughs> 
And he said, it's just a conversation between you and me. Forget anything else. You're going to be fine. And from that point forward, I was fine, but I was so, so, so scared. But that's part of what all this is about, right? Like if you if you don't put yourself in uncomfortable positions, you're never going to get out there. And so that was the beginning of a very scary journey for me. I was always used to being the number two person behind somebody else. I was very, very comfortable and very good at being somebody else's number two. I was never the front person. So it was very scary and very hard, but I had to push myself. And I'm so glad that I did because I've gotten to experience and meet and do and learn things that I never thought that I would be able to to learn in my life. Um, yeah, I mean, including sitting next to Maria Bartiromo once a week on Monday mornings, I just can't believe that that's, that's what's happened as a result yeah. of all this. But that's what happens when you pursue your passions. Yeah. Any specific tools that you can recommend to others if they are struggling with getting comfortable pushing themselves outside of their comfort zone, maybe doing something in a much more public way? What's in your toolkit? How do you get control of your nerves when your heart is feels like it's beating out of your chest and you may throw up on the on the host <laughs> shoes? Or... <laughs> so it's really interesting. In writing uh, the book, I got to interview a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists to try and understand what skills you need to persuade. And one of them um, is all about curiosity. And what I learned is that when you are triggered, when you are afraid, and when you're overly emotional, you cannot be curious at the same time because all of that emotion process in the same part of your brain. So if you're really nervous, if you're about to do a public speaking engagement or go into an interview, if you've got that kind of a, a voice quiver or a handshake or whatever it is you tell that you're super served nervous, what I learned is if you, if you start calming your brain by asking yourself questions, mm. you're going to calm down. And so a lot of times people give this advice, oh, just start um, pretending that the audience looks a different way or start – that's not necessarily – but if you could start asking yourself questions like what what is that feeling I have right now? What is going on right now? What do you think they're thinking? What am I supposed to be doing right now? If you start asking yourself questions, you're going to calm yourself down and you're going to end up in a much, much better place. And I, I think the other thing is you get calmer by doing, yeah. right? And if you don't take the first step, you're never going to get there. And, you know, I like it in some ways if you think about the first, if you've ever gone um, zip lining mm-hmm. or cliff diving. And I'm not a big adventurer, but I have done some of these things. And it is so scary the moment before you jump off. And then you do it and you feel free. Yeah. And you'll do it again and you'll do it again. And that's what's <laughs> true with all of these things. I think so much of this skill is about scrappiness, just saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Lee, let's get into the meat of the book, which is absolutely terrific. As I said in the intro, I've read it. I think it's fabulous. One thing I'm curious about, though, as you set out to write it, I assume your target audience was largely your corporate clients or your potential corporate clients. But there's an awful lot in the book that resonated with me personally as I thought about my own journey, my own brand, building my own thing. Talk about how you approached the book and where you ended up? It's so fascinating. This has been such an amazing journey because it did absolutely start out as something that was going to help my corporate clients. No question about it. It was meant to be a book for corporate communicators. As I was writing the book, it became more and more personal. And that's in large part because in the backdrop of everything that was happening is a more and more divided country, a more and more polarized America. But everything that we're doing is political. Everything that we do is politicized. And what's happening is people are getting more and more tribal. And um, instead of us trying to reach across the aisle and create change or try to reach people who we disagree with, we're becoming more likely to just hang out with people who are just like us. And so 
as I had set out to help corporations and companies communicate more effectively, what I realized is there was a real need for people to engage and connect more meaningfully because I do believe that most people want change. Most people want there to be more equality in the workplace. Most people want there not to be this political schism. Most people want us to be a united country to come together and solve some of these big challenges that are out there. And and so as I was writing the book, I realized the same skills that apply for companies apply to my personal life, apply to politics, apply to everything. And it became more and more personal. And the way that I brought the stories to life infused a lot of my personal stories. And so what I found since I launched the book is that not only have people been reaching out to me and saying, I want to understand more, how did you get where you are? Or I've got this challenge at work that, you know, some people don't think that, you know, I got a bad 360, a bad review. How do I overcome it? Some of these stories that I have in there, and that's really what's been happening. I go and I speak, and now what I'm finding is I have, when I look at my speaking engagements for the next few months, I have five women's conferences. It's mm-hmm. never anything I expected. It's not what I wrote it for, but that's where it's resonating. And because I'm this is so not thankful. a gender-specific book. Not even close. Except that I think that there's just something about this time, about right now, that you know, we all there, there's a huge awareness that there's a there's a challenge. Um, the Me Too movements out there. We've got a lot of people talking about times up, equality in the workplace, getting women not just to be equal numbers in the workplace, but to get equal pay, equal representation in the C-suite. And so now there's the awareness of that. So what next? What do we do about how do we change that? You know, it's not just now about identifying the problem. It's how do we make a difference? How do we make it matter? And that's what this book can help you do. It can help you actually make the change. It can help you change the perceptions. It can help you personally get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And that's um, I think that's why it's resonating so much. And I'm so thankful for that because it's a byproduct of something that um, is really important to me. And I, I want to see that happen. And I want to see more women thriving in the workplace. So I am I'm so grateful that that's come of this, but it's never what I planned. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, yeah. And I, that's so cool when that happens, isn't yeah. it? It really is. Okay, so let's dig into some of the specific concepts in the book. You have this notion that you refer to as active empathy. What do you mean by that? And you talk about three areas in mm-hmm. which this plays out. Give me a little bit more on that topic. So often when we're trying to persuade someone of something, right, <clears throat> we'll start by saying, what do we want to say? What does this person need to know? And that's the wrong place to start. What we need to start with is by understanding the person we're trying to reach, and it's not where we often start. So I, I teach something called active empathy because it, is, it, it takes action. It takes you being active participant in it because, by and large, most people have a natural skill for empathy, but that's only for people that are just like them. We don't naturally have empathy for people we disagree with, for people we don't understand. But the same principles of empathy that apply to someone you know can apply to someone you don't know and you don't agree with. And so I want to be really clear about what I mean by empathy. Empathy does not mean an endorsement. So if you're talking to someone you completely disagree with, that doesn't mean that because you're having empathy for them, you endorse their beliefs. It means simply that you're understanding. And I divide empathy into three different categories because I think each one is important. And oftentimes when we're talking about empathy, we don't sort of break it down enough. We just think it's like, okay, I want to put myself in your shoes. Well, how exactly do you do that? Um, And so I break it down to three different areas. The first is emotional empathy, which is trying to understand why somebody feels the way they feel. The second is behavioral-based empathy, which is why does somebody do what they do? And the last is values-based empathy, which is why does somebody believe what they believe? And if you can understand those three things and unpack those three things, then you're much more likely to create a message that's going to resonate with them. So 
Emotional empathy is something that um, is based on something called the change triangle. The change triangle is basically basically teaches us that there's something called core emotions and inhibitory emotions. Core emotions are God-given or biological emotions that are given to us for a reason, and all of those are good emotions. So like fear and sort of risk aversion and things like that that can so, be bad, but they can be good. Exactly. Right? So fear, it indicates that there's, a, you know, that, that you need to get away from something. There's anger. There's a problem that needs to be solved. There's, there's sadness or grief, which actually in the animal kingdom makes you cry and is a signal that you need help for mm-hmm. others to come around you. There's joy that allows you to continue what you're doing. There's excitement that tells you you're doing a good thing as well. All of those are good emotions, and you want to tap into those kind of emotions if you're communicating with someone. Then there's three inhibitory emotions. Those inhibitory emotions are shame, guilt, and anxiety. Now, shame, guilt, and anxiety are often the emotions that we tap into when we're trying to change somebody's mind. Mm. How could you possibly believe that? We can't afford to let another day go by like this. Those are shame, anxiety, and guilt. Those three emotions actually are inhibitory emotions, and they keep you from doing anything positive. If you tap into those emotions, what you're going to have people do is either bury their head in their stand get indignant and try to fight back, or they're going to do something that's just not productive. And you're not going to have a productive conversation. So much of the dialogue that we're having right now is about that. In many ways, we start telling somebody they're a bad person if they disagree with us, even if that's not what we're intentionally trying to do. It's the way that we make them feel. If you think about climate change communication, you know we're going to be underwater by 2025. That makes people Filled with anxiety. It doesn't necessarily, fear is something you say, I can do something about this. Anxiety is just generalized, it's non specific. So, what are you going to do about it? And I think that we really need to be careful about tapping into those emotions. So, first, you need to understand how somebody, you know, how they feel about an issue and when you're communicating with them. Then there's something called values based, and this is based on Jonathan Haidt's work. He has something called the moral foundation theory. Basically, it says all decisions that we make are based on morals that we hold dear. So if you think about most Democrats, their primary value is harm versus care. So if you think about how they communicate about welfare, how they communicate about health care, how they communicate about gun reform, all of their their, uh, messaging is around harm versus care. Think about Republicans' messaging. Their primary value is mostly around liberty versus oppression, which is we have a right to bear arms. Freedom first. Nothing scares us more than the government taking away our rights. And that's very much where their... their, um, their values lie. And so when you have those two people trying to have a conversation, one saying, how could you possibly not care about people? And one saying, I do care about people, but I care about, my, you know, nothing makes me feel safer than me having my own rights. Mm-hmm. You're just going to be talking over each other. But if you understand where the other person's coming from, you can have a much more productive conversation and even find something that can unify you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the idea behind um, the values-based. And then finally, there's behaviors-based, which is what most often we think about when we think about empathy is why do people do what they do? And I don't think that we give this enough real depth and understanding. So I'll give you an example. I was doing a project related to diabetes, and most people get really, really judgy of type 2 diabetics. Sure. And they think it's their fault. They don't understand why they don't diet and exercise better. And I would say to them, have you ever tried to do a healthy January and how far do you get? Imagine if I told you the rest of your life, that's how you had to live. It's very, very challenging. But if you were to talk to a diabetic about why they don't take care of themselves or why they don't take better care of themselves, take their medication, do what they're supposed to be doing, they'll tell you things like they're busy. Now, we're all busy. And that doesn't necessarily keep some people from, from diet and exercise and others, right, doing it. 
But in one of the conversations that we were having, there was this woman who was in her 70s, and she said, you know, this weekend's my birthday, and I want to have cake. And I have all my family coming over, and I know if I don't have cake, if I eat healthy, the topic of conversation is going to be my diabetes. And what I want for one day is to have my family together and just be a family and not be sick. And so underneath that, you realize part of the reason they're doing this is they don't want to feel sick. Right. They don't want to be reminded all the time that they're sick, have these conversations. So once you understand that, then you can do something with it. Then you can start saying things like instead of doing this whole idea about efficiency or you can have five-minute recipes for health or those kinds of things, you can say, if you do these things, then you can occasionally have cake. Yeah. And that makes people much more likely to behave the way that you want them to. But once you understand all of those different elements about a person or about the types of people that you're communicating with, first of all, you're going to soften. Your tone's going to change, your approach is going to change, and your messaging is going to change. And you're going to end up in a much better place, having much better conversations than you ever would otherwise. Yeah. Not to get into a partisan conversation, but who of the candidates running currently are those on the national stage? Who's doing this particularly well? So uh, this might surprise you when I'm going to say I think Bernie Sanders does a very, very, very good job of, of doing exactly what I'm talking about. He really knows his target audience. He knows what's important to them. He knows what values are to hold dear to them. And he is their champion. He is somebody who has a singular narrative. You know what he's all about. He's got a few signature policies he needs to talk about. And everybody's reacting to him, Medicare for all, um, you know, student debt forgiveness. Whether you agree with him on a policy you know, basis or not, you know what he stands for. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so important is that he knows exactly who he's communicating with and he doesn't deviate. Um, and Donald Trump did a very similar thing in 2016. Now, the rest of the field is very fractured, so then it's very hard to say then who else is doing a good job of it. Elizabeth Warren, I said, was doing a very good job of it, but I often say that nothing kills a message faster than contradiction. Mm. And she often contradicts herself, and I think that's something that really, really killed her, and it, a lot of her support then went to Bernie Sanders because he is who he is who he yeah. is. And then you look at the, the other field. You look at Biden and the others. What do they stand for? They stand against Donald Trump, but what are they about? What is their message? Who is their target audience? Who is their target voter? What are they going to do for them? And you're not necessarily sure. I think you've seen Joe Biden recently really focus in South Carolina. You're seeing a new person emerge over the last couple of days. Is he going to be able to sustain that? We'll see. Mm -hmm. But you can always tell who people, you know, who's winning by who people are reacting to. Yeah. And right now everybody's reacting to Donald Trump. And Bernie Sanders. And I think Bernie Sanders, up until, you know, we had Amy Klobuchar and, and Mayor Pete um, step down, you know, Bernie Sanders was was the one that was winning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so I, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you see related to gender differences in persuasion. Does it matter if it's a man or a woman who's talking? We just had Janine Driver, who's a body language expert on the podcast last week. And she talked about, you know, the best way for a woman to get sort of control of the boardroom and get men to listen to her. And there were certain certain uh, things that you could do from a body language standpoint that would increase the chances that someone would listen to you. So in the context of language, talk a little bit about how gender differences come into play if they do. So I think gender differences definitely do come into play. And one of the things that I think is very refreshing and awesome about the time that we're living in 
is that you can both be feminine and a leader. And it used to be that women to succeed had to behave more like men. Right. And all of the models that they had, when I first started public speaking, I would go up there and men would say, I would get coached by men about you have to move with intention. Don't use your hands too much. Don't, And you start behaving very robotic and not yourself. So I think one of the things that's really important as a woman is to get in touch with who you are, your authentic self. If you are a feminine woman, be a feminine woman. If you're not, don't be. But so much of what we were trying to do for so long is to behave like somebody that we're not. And I think now is the time to really lean in and fully be who you are. The other thing that I think is really important is leaning into your weaknesses. So my voice when I was younger was very, very high-pitched and soft. And I, I would struggle with that when I was speaking and even trying to get respect as, you know, a 20-something-year-old who didn't, you know, have the authority kind of voice. But when you acknowledge it, it can be disarming. You know, if you just allow people, you, if, if you take stock of what your weaknesses are and own them, mm -hmm. it's really, really powerful. There's something right now about authenticity that is everything. Mm -hmm. And so if you're nervous at the beginning of a presentation and your voice cracks, if you can just take a moment and say, you know what, this is a big deal meeting and I, I just need to take a minute here. That's much more disarming to somebody than not acknowledging that your voice cracked at all and everybody's seeing like, wow, she's nervous. Is she okay? Is she going to, you know, <laughs> because they gonna know. show up on my, is she going to throw up on my shoes? <laughs> they know, right? Yeah. And so I think that's something that we really have to get comfortable with. Now, from a language perspective, what I think is so interesting about what I teach is women, I think, are much more in tune empathetically than men are. Right. Mm -hmm. Men are drivers, by and large, in 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 the corporate setting. They come in. They know what they want to say. They know what they want to do. They're more likely to say, ask for a job that they don't feel qualified for. They're just going to go for it. Women sort of slow down, assess the situation. And so I think that women are much more naturally inclined to be persuasive. But women aren't more as likely to put themselves out there. Mm. They're going to do all the observing and stand back until they feel like they're ready. And what I really think it's time to do is for you to put yourself out there. Ready or not, here you come. Mm -hmm. You know what you want, go for it. For years before us, men have gone for it before they were. There's all kinds of studies, I forget what the exact statistics are, about how prepared a woman needs to feel like before they ask for the promotion versus men. Like 90 or 100. Yeah, it's <laughs> 100%. like, it's, it's, it's so, so I just think it's time. Like, you have all the skills, you know you can do it, get scrappy and do it. And that to me is the big difference because I can teach men to slow down, but women, by and large, have to say, like, speed up, get out there, grab it. It's yeah. yours. And it's our time. It's such an awesome time to be a woman. That's my big advice. Yeah. No, it's great advice. So talk about how vision comes into play. I mean, whether you're a company or whether you're mm. a woman who is getting ready to go for it, talk about the role of vision. You write about this so eloquently in the book. It was the it was the those sections that really resonated with me so deeply. I loved them. Talk about why vision matters and how you go about setting your vision. So, you know, vision is something, it's the first step in persuasion. Um, it's creating a vision for where you want to go. And oftentimes we give it short shrift. I think most people know when you're doing a market, you'd write a creative brief. You have your objective, a business plan. You have your objective. When you're starting out, you should know where you want to go. And we do, we do little things. We were like, well, I want 10% growth. I want a new job by next year. I want to get the promotion in the next cycle. But it's really not visual. And the thing about a vision is that it, in, the, in the core root word is the word visual, mm -hmm. right? Vision, mm -hmm. visual. 
you have to be so crystal clear about your vision that you can picture it. In the book, I tell this story, and I think it's a really, really powerful story because it stuck with me for so long. But when I was in college, I had a breakup, um, and my friend Glenn took me out for drinks after the breakup. And he he was trying to convince me that it didn't matter. And he said something along those lines, like, you know, in 10 years, it's not going to matter at all. And I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm devastated. And and he said, well, where do you think you're going to be in 10 years? Or where do you want to be in 10 years? And I said, oh, I don't know. I, I guess maybe in 10 years I'd like to be married and have a kid or two and a job that I like. And he goes, that's your dream for where you want to be in 10 years? And I said, I guess. He said, Lee, that is so pathetic. He said, let me tell you a dream. In 10 years' time, I'm going to be on my boat coming back into the marina. My dad and my brother and I are just going to have spent the day fishing. And um, it's going to be sunset. The wind is going to be blowing through my hair. And on the radio is going to be playing Hollywood Nights. And I'm going to be pulling in the marina. My wife's going to be there. And I'm going to know. I'm just going to know in that moment that I've made it. He said, Lee, that's a dream. And I was like, oh, wow, I want your dream, right? (laughs) But there was something so powerful and poetic about what he said. I don't think he realized the impact that he had on me because when you're creating a vision, that's what it should be. You should be able to close your eyes and picture it. You should be able to know exactly where you're going. And the reason for that, there's a few reasons. One, when it's a personal vision, it takes you a while to get where you're going. If you really want to make a change in your life, if you really want to change perceptions about you or you want a new career or you want to do something totally different or you want to run for office, it's going to take a while and it's going to be hard and people are going to doubt and there's going to be moments where you think I can't do it and then you're going to know, like, you know, you're going to you're going to struggle with the depths of your soul as you're making these changes. And if you have that picture in your head, you can close your eyes and you go, I know where I'm going and I can get through it. The other thing that's really important about it is that if you have other people that are involved, so if you're leading an organization, if you're trying to create a movement, if you're trying to create change in in anything, you need other people to make that happen. And if you can paint the picture for them, then they're all going to know where they're going. And so it, it keeps you focused also. The third benefit is it keeps you absolutely focused because there's lots of activities you could pick up along the way, you know, trying to make that change. But if it's not going to get you where you want to go, you don't want to be spending your time on it. So the idea of focus, um, weathering the storm and getting others on board, I think those are the three benefits of really slowing down and getting that vision crystal, crystal clear. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we spend enough time doing it at all. I think we often just make it a bullet point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One question that I have about that. When you establish your vision and you're, you mentioned you'll have doubters. There'll be people that will doubt your vision, whether you're capable, um, maybe because it could have some impact on them when you share it with them. How do you differentiate and sort of deal with the doubters versus legitimate feedback that you can listen to versus the people that you really shouldn't be listening to at all? How do you know the difference? How do you process that? I think this is a really hard thing because, you know, on the one hand, it could cause you to put up arbitrary sort of barriers for why not to go all the way with your vision. At the same time, you do need feedback to test it, to channel channel it. How do you get that balance right? So one thing that I have adopted, and I think this has been one of the most powerful things that I've done, is creating my own personal advisory board. I don't know if, if, if you've ever done that, sure. but I have about five women who I consider to be mentors, whether it's official or unofficial, who 
I use as sounding boards as I'm going through things. And I keep them very, very close and I hold them very, very dear. And so as you're developing these changes, you're going to get feedback from outside sources. Some of them are trusted, some of them are not, but not all of them are going to be part of your advisory board. When you're struggling with it, I think it's really important to have some trusted people that you can go to and say, hey, I'm I'm down and out right now. They say I can't do it, that I'm never going to make it, or whatever it is that the feedback is, that I'm not capable, I don't have the right skills, that I, you know, financially we can't afford to do this, or whatever it is. And then there's some trusted advisors you have that you can just really go to. And the other thing I, I, I tell folks to do is to sit on it. Because when you first hear the feedback, it can be really, really hard. And it can seem like you're never going to get through it. Mm-hmm. But if you can start unpacking and getting curious about what that feedback's about, what's underneath it, like you said, sometimes it might be that that person actually, it's not in their interest to have you make that change. And if you can spend this, if you can slow down with it, you can start to start to see what's going on underneath the surface. Sometimes you might get feedback that's really, really hurtful to you. And if you can slow down and get curious about why that feedback exists, you might learn that there's a nugget in there that's going to help you. Yeah. And so I think it's really, really important not to take feedback at face value, to sit with it, to learn from it, and to take it to people that you trust to work it through. So I was interested in the book. There's a sort of a different take that you take as it relates to your corporate clients and encouraging them to listen to the really negative stuff or sort of the haters and the trolls. And I found that advice so interesting because it's completely the opposite of what I would have thought you would have said. It's very different, perhaps. I don't know. You tell me. But how should a, a, an individual versus a company think about haters and trolls? The thing is that we're living in this environment where you can't get away from them. Mm-hmm. They're going to be out there. And so what I'm not, I I tell people you need to listen to your haters. It doesn't mean that you need to react to your haters. Or necessarily internalize what they're saying. Exactly. Um, But oftentimes what what my clients do, what I've done in the past, say, let's just ignore them. You see a candidate out there and you say, so what do you think of this person? And you say, you know, this this criticism. I don't read the feedback. Well, of course you do. Of course we (laughs) listen to it. Of course, of course. But sometimes in there, there's nuggets that really are going to help us make things better. If you really listen, if Hillary Clinton really listened to her haters, what was underneath what they were saying about her? They didn't trust her. They didn't know her, right? Part of what it was is everything seemed so manufactured that they couldn't get underneath who she was. So there was a lack of connection, connection, Mm -hmm. a lack of trust. So if instead of dismissing her haters, she had really listened to them and said, oh, wait a minute. I want to understand what's going on here. She might have opened up more. She might have let us in a little bit more. And I think the same thing happens with our corporate clients and with companies. If you just ignore what's going on there, you're going to miss something. And oftentimes, I think we'll go down the easy route. So if we're talking about something like climate change, for example, oftentimes we'll say, let's just preach to the choir. Let's talk to people who are likely to engage in a climate change initiative. When really what we need, if, if climate change you know, support and advocacy is your goal, you need to get climate change deniers on board. 30% of Americans don't believe that climate change is real, so you can't just ignore those people and expect change to happen. You're going to have to find a way to reach them. So how do you reach them? How do you listen to what they're saying and reach them? And there is a way. You can find out if you spend some time talking to them that, by and large, they're very good people. By and large, they actually do care about their community. They care about the mountains and the streams and clean water. Um, But when you talk about climate change, they hear politics. 
When you talk about climate change, they hear things are going to get more expensive. When, you th- when they talk about climate change, they think those are people who support that judge people like me. And underneath that, then you can find a way to say, oh, well, there's a way to communicate about this that can bring us all together. And I think often we just dismiss people out of hand who we would consider to be haters. And that's a real, real dangerous thing if you're trying to make change because those vocal opponents can be very, very loud and they can they can actually make all, you know, hold up everything else from happening. Yeah. You talk about in the book the importance of telling your authentic story. You just touched on that a moment ago. And as part of that, looking to find that one thing. What is that one thing? And what do you mean by that in the book? So um, have you ever read any Kamala Harris um, from Morgan Stanley? Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She mm-hmm. talks about how you have to find your, the words you want it associated with you when, when, so that when people are talking about you when you're not in the room, they're saying the words that you want them to be saying. Uh. Because she says all the most important decisions about you are made when you're not in the room, about your career, about your promotions, about whether or not you're going to, you know, when, if people are going to vote for you or not, whatever those things are. If you're at the supermarket trying to buy a product, you know, the, the marketer doesn't get to go there with you. So what are the words that you want to associate with? What is the one thing you want people to remember? And oftentimes we don't do this. We don't have a master narrative. A master narrative is the one thing that you want people to say about you when you're not in the room. That one seniorly focused idea that's going to be repeatable, memorable, and that people are going to be able to say, so why, why should you have Lee come in to speak? Why should you vote for Joe Biden? Why should you vote for Donald Trump? This is about making it easy for somebody to make the answer. So if you think about Donald Trump, why vote for Donald Trump? Well, because he's going to make America great again. What's he going to do for you? These few things. Mm. It makes the conversation very easy so anybody can have it. What and you is can it, argue it and dispute. What is it for you? What, what, what is your one, one thing that you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? So what's really interesting about mine is when I was younger in my career, my one thing I wanted everybody to know is I was scrappy. I wanted everyone to know that if there was something to get done, I would get it done and I would find a way. I didn't necessarily know at the answer in the beginning, but that's what I was going to be all about. And so that became my one thing early part of my career. Then as I was building my career, I wanted everyone to know the one thing I was really good at was building business. And that was internally. So I was really good with clients, and I was going to build my business. And that was going to differentiate me. And so that became my thing internally. Now, what I want everyone to, what I want to be known for is helping people be heard. And if I can help people be heard and resonate and bring people together in a time where people aren't listening, then I really am going to have an impact. Um, And so this whole idea of messaging language and resonance, that's what I want to be known for um, and helping people come together in a more meaningful way. Is that how you define impact for yourself as well when you think about the impact that you want to have or want to have had on others? Is that how you would would you define it the same way? Yes. A few years ago, I had an, an executive counsel me um, and he was like, here's what I, I want you to know you're really good at. You're really good at helping people understand what they don't already understand. And it was such a gift to me that he, he told me that because, to me, I can measure my impact if I've helped people understand something they don't already understand. And, you know, nothing that I'm teaching is terribly new. It's not like it's not breakthrough, but it's at a time where people aren't talking about it, at a time where everything is divided, where it doesn't matter what you're doing. You can come into a meeting with a cup of coffee and somebody's thinking you're making a political statement. 
you know, and it's just a very difficult time, but people want change to happen. So if I can help in any way, then I know I'm going to have the impact that I want to. Yeah. Lee, one final question. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. It could be advice you wish you had had when you were in your 20s, just launching your career, or maybe it's something that you'll tell your your child. You have a young child, a young baby. Uh, but maybe you're, it's something that you'll tell her one day. What would that be? The one mantra that I would I would tell my daughter and I would tell every woman is that you have everything in you that you need to get where you need to go, that you are enough, and all it requires is just doing it. And I think we spend too much time being critical of ourselves, being afraid of things when you don't know what you're capable of until you start doing it. Lee, it's awesome. Really awesome. Thank you so much. Thank for you being so here. much. Really appreciate it. Friends, Lee's book is Persuasion Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter. Remember, you can purchase the book via the link in the show notes for this episode, episode 90, and we'll include it in the newsletter this week as well. And if you aren't getting the Friday newsletter, you are missing out. Please sign up. We include additional details about each episode, as well as some related reading material and some other highlights that we think you're going to enjoy. And using Lee's advice, if you're a hater, I guess we want to hear from you too, but give it to us gently. (laughs) As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of this amazing group of women who, like Lee, are sharing their tremendous insights, their perspectives, their personal stories, not only to inspire us, but to help us grow from their experiences. Until next week. 